Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times, and Anne-Marie Batson, the journalist and broadcaster. For a while, it became fashionable to mock David Moyes. Fergie's flop, yesterday's man. You know the drill. Ignorant, disrespectful, stupid. West Ham's owners treated him as a glorified caretaker manager before they realised the magnitude of their mistake. Moyes now has the club in the Champions League places. His team's virtues are familiar. Now, Johnny, you know him well. How far can he take them? Yeah, I mean, look, I've known David for years, Mike, as you say, and I got to know him when he was at Everton during those incredible years where he established Everton. I mean, it's amazing to think now, but a, a club that finished, you know, in the top four, that finished in the top seven for about well, seven out of 10 years or something ludicrous like that, that was regularly up at the top end of the league, that, that had good runs in cups, forays into Europe. And he did that without much of a budget. He did that by building brick by brick, by bringing in the right players, by starting to develop players and by instilling a, a culture at a football club that was all about resilience and, and being really hard to play against, but sprinkled with, with talent in there as well. And of course, that incredible eye in the transfer market. And what he started at West Ham is along those lines. That's what I see when I see West Ham. I think he's worked remarkably quickly to produce a transformation in just over a year but you can see West Ham being built along Everton lines. So when you talk about where West Ham can go, that would be David's blueprint. And that's, I think, what they're capable of. I don't think football has changed to the degree that, that an Everton is not possible again. If you think about the era he did it before, it was an era where English clubs were in the top end of the Champions League all the time, winning Champions Leagues, you know, the great Mourinho team, the great United team. So it's not any more difficult now. I think he can build, if he's given time, and backing by those owners, <clears throat> and it doesn't have to be huge financial backing, but it has to be sensible backing. I think West Ham can be properly established under him as a as a as a serious club, as a significant Premier League club for several years. Yeah, the ultimate test, I suppose, now is Manchester City away, which they've got on on Saturday lunchtime. How well equipped do you think they are to to meet that test, Amory? And 
How important is it that sort of change in team culture that Johnny referred to there, where you know West Ham basically have gone from show ponies, the sort of Felipe Andersons of this world, to to the workhorses? You know, look at the Czech pair there; they've been fantastic. Well, they're certainly not missing Sebastian Haller, are they? For sure, not not at all. Not at all. There's a there's a player who's actually forgotten by his new club as well. Didn't get any cameras. I mean, for me, you know, you know what did it for me, guys, was that result against Spurs, the three-three against Spurs. That's what twigged it for me, and I was thinking that was a team that was prepared to dig in deep and show the other side they weren't prepared to give up. I think in the past, West Ham had a bit of a reputation. The minute they went down a goal, that they would just give up, and that isn't the case now. There seems to be this warrior-like. Uh, warrior-like approach about them now that they're able to play without fear. Whether the fans being there or not, I don't know. I know there's a big debate around that, but I'm I'm actually, as I've talked about before, I'm actually enjoying watching West Ham playing. They're playing with a bit of flair. They're playing with a bit of freedom as well. I know from the past that David Moyes has tended to go with the cautious approach and for him himself, he seems the shackles have seemed to come off. And also for me, West Ham have become one of the teams in the Premier League that are not reliant on just one player. Man City have been able to to do that. Leicester have shown that. And now you've got that at West Ham. And it is that balance within the team. It is that partnership between Thomas Suchek and Declan Rice, who I really enjoy watching those two play together. You can get goals now from Jared Bowen, Said Benrahma as well. And also for me, West Ham are coping with the intense schedule of the Premier League, whereas other teams are struggling. So I'm I'm keeping my fingers crossed for them they could finish in a top four space, but this is going to get tight now, particularly that game against City. But I have no doubt that on that day, they're going to turn up and show City what they're all about. Yeah, certainly the team dynamics seem to be working. You know, there's definitely a spirit there, probably rallied around Declan Rice as a, as a, a leader, a natural leader. Johnny, you know, we mentioned the owners earlier on. Managing upwards at West Ham is always the key, isn't it? Now, less experienced managers would struggle with such, how do I put it, quixotic owners? <laughs> Good word. Um, they would. Two things about David. I guess he's been in the game a long, long time now. He's, he's, he's had a variety of chairmen, shall we say, and a variety of experiences. I mean, don't forget, he was at Sunderland at the, at the, very, at the very worst. So he's mature. He's, he, he, you know, he's, he, he kind of understands... Owners can be. Of course, he's worked for them before, so he went in with his eyes open. To be fair, I think it was a big thing for him that they were willing to swallow their pride and come back. And he recognises that not all owners would do that. You know, a lot of owners are they keen. You can see it with transfers, can't you? When when an owner signs a player and then the manager has to keep playing them, and you know, because the owner's too stubborn to admit their vanity signings actually rubbish. Now, I think he was quite impressed that they were willing to swallow their pride. And, and call them up and say, you know what, we got it wrong. You know, we went down the the glamour, the Pellegrini route, and and can you come back? So that's fine. And and I think one one thing he always said to me at Everton, and I think you can see it in operation now, is that even if you can't, you know, if you don't have a big budget or if you can't necessarily control exactly who you get to bring in, you can control who you get rid of, and you can control who you keep. And a lot of that team building, you know, has been by getting rid of the ones that aren't right for the culture and by putting the ones that are right for the culture at centre stage. And it's, it's interesting, Man Marie mentioned Suchek and Rice, because I think she's right. I think that's the, 
they are they epitomize West Ham for me, those two. You've got Rice, who's West Ham's in his bones and, and is this incredibly driven young player. David was talking last week about how he looks at Declan Rice and he thinks, my God, I've got to make this team better because this kid's not going to stay unless I keep making things better. So Declan Rice is actually driving David Moyes on. And then on the other hand, you've got Suchek, who's, who's you know, every game he plays like he's a guy who's, who's won a ticket to play in the Premier League. He's so happy <laughs> and he's such a good player, but he's so happy to be here. And, and I, I'm led to believe that like uh, the day after a game when they come in to do their rehab, he wants to get out on the pitch and start running again. He's just got this sort of energy about him and they're all, the coaches are having to go, can you come inside, Thomas? You know, go and get a massage or whatever. So, you know, there's a lovely, there's a lovely culture being built around the right people. And, and that's what's, you know, the owners, of course, they're not, they're not defining West Ham anymore, I guess is what I'm saying for better or worse. I actually don't think they're the worst owners in the world in terms of football owners. They might be questionable in some ways, in other ways, but in terms of football clubs, I think there's actually worse worse out there by a long way. Mm. What about, there are, as I said right at the start, definable virtues and qualities about a Moyes team, and you can see it at West Ham, Anne-Marie, they're organised, really effective at, at set pieces. Things what strikes me is that they're also sufficiently flexible to incorporate you know, a real individual like Jesse Lingard. And I love that celebration when he when he got his goal. All of them carrying around pretending that they were playing instruments, which I thought was just it's just yeah. quality. Can, can, and again, can you give just... can you give Declan Rice some drumming lessons? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh man, that was so funny. But uh, it, it is, it is, and I think it's get it. The team has that balance where they can have one player who can go out, get that goal in, in the final third, but they've also got the opportunity to a team that can defend like rock solid at the back. But that has taken time to find the right players to fit into that dynamic. And like City, having that flexibility where you can make those changes, make those tactical tweaks as and when you need to, West Ham have that now. And that is a real luxury within the Premier League. And it also shows that you don't have to have the most expensive squad to be able to do that either. Yeah, speaking of that, Amory, you know, have we been sort of missing the point here? Pep Guardiola came up with probably the best statement of the obvious that I've heard in football for years after that game last night. He was asked about the secret of their success, you know, the um, 19 wins on the bounce, 26 games unbeaten, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what's the secret of his success? We've got a lot of money to buy a lot of incredible players. (laughs) Says it all, doesn't it? It does. It does for him. I think, um, I mean... that question, it's uh, why would you ask him that question anyway? He, you know, th- that squad is just on on another level for sure. And I have to admit, there are two things I have to admit about City. One, I have to eat humble pie about Phil Foden. I was one of the people saying I think he should go out and get more experience, get more game time. But look how he now he stayed. It's paying dividends for City, that's for sure. But also, I kind of took my eye off City that early part of the season. I think I was so focused on what Liverpool were doing and, and obviously Arsenal and Leicester. I, I, and Man City were bubbling away in the background, getting not really getting their wins. And then all of a sudden, since Christmas, they've just started to go like 100 miles per hour. And also what's quite key for them is that they've had key players out and other players have now started to put in even more shifts. So that question about what's going on with Sergio Aguero, they've had no Kevin De Bruyne for a few weeks, and yet they're still getting those wins. 
But for me, the priority is going to be the summer for that squad. I think there's going to be questions that need to be asked. What's going on with Aguero's contract? You've got Fernandinho. Is, I don't want to make him sound old, but he is 35. So they're going to have to look at midfielder options and they're going to have to look at maybe uh, an option for left back as well. So it's not the perfect squad, but I think they're the ones that are most likely going to lift the trophy for the Premier League at the end of the season. Mm. So Johnny... I read your piece at the weekend, uh, fascinating insight into Pep Guardiola's approach to this season. And how much does he take from his mentor, Wamar Lilo? What was your impression of him when Pep was talking about him? Yeah, I think it's an interesting story behind what's happened to City this year. I mean, you know, Lilo is... I, I, I guess it was only when Pep was speaking about him actually on Friday that really fully appreciate exactly how much he rates this guy, how important he is. And he talks about him in awestruck tones and says, you know, this guy sees things that I can't see that very few people in the world can see on a football pitch. You know, he's a guy that keeps me calm. He's a, he's a guy that I, I sort of turn to when, when, when I, you know, I, I need that little bit of insight or information. And when you think how clever Pep Guardiola is, it's quite extraordinary to hear that. But, but, you know, if you look back into their backstory, he's Lilo is 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 you know along with Johan Cruyff the biggest influence on on Guardiola's career. He's a he's a guy that was a bit of a coaching prodigy in Spain who who was coaching when they, at the age of sixteen who took a team into the top flight at at the age of twenty nine. And Pep was growing up as a player while he was he was sort of bursting on the scene and 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 watched his teams and sort of idolised how he played. He's a sort of I guess a mini Bielsa in in in, in Spain. To the point that when Pep was was played against one of his sides, and I think it was Oviedo, went went to the opposition dressing room, knocked on the door, and sought him out and said, "You know, I, I, I just love how your teams play. Can we be friends with each other? You know, that kind of gauche thing to do." <laughs> but that's kind of Pep, isn't it? And and went to Mexico at the end of his career in order to play for this guy, and you know, has, has always used him at the start of his career at Barcelona. Was using. Lilo as a sounding board when he was designing sessions and so on. And I think one of the things that's happened to Pep this year, you know, this was a crossroads for him after a really disappointing season, that disaster in the Champions League at the end of it last year. And the the, the, the question, was he going to sign a new contract or not? And he's, he's sort of flipped the coin, as it were, and he's thought, right, I'm going to stay. And if I'm going to stay, I'm going to enjoy it. If I'm going to stay, I'm going to do things my way and... I'm going to have the best time I can while doing it. And and working with Lilo has always been his bucket list thing to do. You know, it's it's been like a dream of his to 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 bring this this guy in, and he's got he's got him there. And I think you can see the enjoyment. Pep, Pep's reconnected with with his own football past and his own football ideas, and and the ideas that Lilo put forward in Spain and 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 as you know very deep guy, if you read interviews with him, has always spoken about, are exactly the Pep Guardiola ideas. You know, he was pioneering them. But, you know, one of the ideas, and I think about it a lot when I'm watching City, is that attack and defence are the same thing. You can't divide the functions in football. Lilo said that, you know, if you you try and just train defence, that's like trying to just train Rafa Nadal's arm, but not the rest of his body to play tennis, you know? And... City, uh, last night Stack came on in the Champions League. I think they can, they've faced 29 shots, which is less than half any other team's faced. You know, they're not conceding goals. Part of the reason is no one's getting near their goal. 
And it's that Lilo thing that attack and defense are exactly the same thing. You don't divide them up. And it's all about your positioning on the pitch. It's about keeping the ball. And it's about 11 men working the forwards, starting to defend. And that's one thing I think has really been re-emphasized with City this year. They look in such harmony again. And that's the kind of football that, I, that Lilo has always idealized. Yeah, there is certainly a remorselessness about City at the moment. And they are basically squeezing teams to death. Given the amount of um, players available to him, do you now expect to see rotation on a more regular basis, Amory? Because you know, let's let's be honest, the Premier League's pretty much sorted out, isn't it? I do expect Manchester City to rotate from the Premier League. It would be sensible to do that, considering it's coming to that crunch point now within the Premier League. They're in the League Cup final. They're still within the, the Champions League as well. You know, they've still got a feet in, in competition, so it would make sense for players to be rotated. And I think what is given with City now, they've got other players that can score goals. As Jonathan talked about, you know, they squeeze the life out of other teams. They have that balance. So I think for me, the Premier League is the priority for them. I think the Champions League will get interesting if they can get to the quarterfinal stage. That's the roadblock for them. And I think that'll be a massive confidence boost. If they can get past that, then I think they've got a real chance with Champions League. But they'd love to do the Premier League again because there was so much talk about it. It was going to go back to Liverpool. Can you imagine what it's going to be at the end of the season if City do get their hands on that trophy? And I think it's also good for other players to get a chance to get some minutes on the pitch as well. You know, as I mentioned, without Kevin De Bruyne, you did wonder how City would manage without him. They're flying without him. And when he comes back, goodness, I pray for anybody that has to face them when he's back in the team. Mm. Well, we've got the Manchester derby on the horizon, Johnny. Reasons for trepidation for United? <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I mean, United are doing doing all right. But, but City are just, as Amory said, squeezing life out of, of teams. They're dominant. They're, they're in such sync at the moment. I'd, you know, we've seen we've seen them as a kind of ceiling that that, that Solskjaer has has come up against. I know, I know he's had the successes in the league, but I've always felt that in the really big games in those cup semi-finals, City have just been a class too good for them. And I, I think it might be the the same again. They will want to get this league title sorted as a matter of priority. It is it'll be one of the biggest achievements of Pep's career, and it will be an incredible achievement by that club because we were talking about a Liverpool dynasty a year ago. And they want to they want to get it done, and I, I think if they they play seventy five percent as well as they can, they'll beat United. Mm. United first off have got uh, Chelsea at Stamford Bridge on on Sunday. Emery, what are you making of of Thomas Tuchel? Obviously, they're unbeaten. Um, there seems to be almost greater assurance about them at the moment. Can I just say I really enjoy Thomas Tuchel's post match interviews. He gives proper forensic analysis doesn't he of the, of the decisions that he's made the tactics he's made it's actually quite refreshing because I think some coaches managers tend to give you know three sentences and that's about it but with him he's happy to sit, stand there or sit there and chat for a long time about why he's made certain decisions I've, I'm finding him I like him a lot I was I was surprised about the Frank Lampard sacking I thought he might have got a bit more time and I was a little bit worried about this whole idea that Thomas Tuchel wouldn't give ideas to the younger players I think we could throw both those things out the window now and I quite like listening to him as well he's really got a tactical brain on him hasn't he so I think he's a welcome addition to the Premier League I think you can see now that Chelsea are more disciplined within their play there's more structure the gap now is is 
being close in terms of they're now putting themselves back into the story of being of one of the teams wanting to stay in the top four, at least trying to, you know, make themselves heard of being one of the teams considered for the top four. They're controlling the games a lot more. And that was the thing with Chelsea for me. That was the one defining thing, that they were teams who would dominate from the first whistle and they would turn the screw very, very slowly. And you haven't seen that over the last six to 12 months or so. So I think he's he's definitely pushing them that way forward. I think as Piliqueta as well has benefited massively from Thomas Tuchel's coaching style, switching to that to the back three and having him on the right is paying massive dividends as well. I mean, and Giroud, what can we say about him? He's always been a brilliant finisher anyway, but he is a player that only needs that one moment to make it count. I'd like to think Thomas Tuchel has encouraged him to keep playing in that way. Yeah, every manager or new manager goes into his, his club, new club, and basically says, you know, I've drawn a line, Everyone starts equal. I get the impression that Tuchel has done that, Johnny, don't you? Absolutely. <clears throat> I think that's, uh, that's, that's evident and it's refreshing. Too many politics at Chelsea for a number of years and, and maybe too many times that hasn't been happening. And he's, yeah, he, as Amory said, he's, he's, got, he, he, he's a fascinating bloke. He's a real communicator. He's clearly in love with the details of the game and he's clearly giving players you know, in a kind of very open-minded way, every opportunity to impress him. I think as Piliqueta on the in, in that defence, it's so so obvious he was so good in that role under Conte and it was amazing that Chelsea ever sort of moved away from that. And he's just done sensible sensible things like that. The the management of Hudson-Odoi is interesting. You know, I, I suspect player will react in the right way to that because I think it was, it was said in the right spirit. You know, that's a coach just wanting the best for... Player and their improvement. He, he was incredible. You know, Tuchel was incredibly effusive about Kante when he came in, but Kante's actually had to sit on the bench because at the moment others are in probably better form. So there's a lot to like. I like seeing Rudiger back on the pitch as well. I have to say, I, I like him a lot. And you know, this is this is a start for, for Tuchel, but it's been pretty good so far. It will be interesting, won't it, in terms of him putting his mark on the team in terms of getting yet more players in. Do you understand, I know you spoke about Tuchel's trust in the younger players, Anne-Marie, but do you understand that, that Tammy Abraham is essentially resisting a new contract at the moment because of what might happen in the summer? You know, there are inevitable links to Haaland, for instance. Do you understand that? Absolutely, and I think that's the right way. It's a sensible approach. He needs to consider all his options and what role he can play in Chelsea going forward. If Erland is going to be coming to Chelsea, what does that mean for Tammy Abraham? And also, you've got the Euros coming up as well, and he'd you know he wants to be able to feature in that. So, I think he's been very, very sensible. He's he's taking his time. He's a he's a great player. He's still learning. He hasn't even peaked yet. That's the thing with. Tammy Abraham, when he went out on low, he was just firing goals left, right and centre. No doubt he wants to, to get back to those levels as being seen as an out-and-out out goal scorer. So I think what he's doing is completely sensible and I hope he makes the right decision and the right decision for his career. Mm. Before we go into talk about Liverpool, I just want to express our condolences to the goalkeeper Alison Becker, whose father passed away overnight in what appears to be an accident uh, back home in Brazil. You know, the bad news keeps coming for that football club. But 
if you've got a club which would rally rally behind one of its own, I think Liverpool probably qualifies above everything. In a football sense, Johnny, Liverpool are at Sheffield United on Sunday evening. They've had more than a week's soul-searching in a football sense again. Do you think that's a good or a bad thing? Mm. I don't, I mean, look, I, I don't know because there's been periods in this season where Liverpool have had a break and, and you've expected them to come back after that break, transformed. You know, clear, clearly there's been an accumulation of, of things that are to do with fatigue, with, with injuries and mental tiredness and so on. And they've been through a lot and, and they've had these breaks and, and haven't actually, hasn't fixed anything. I think the lesson is that they're in one of these situations where there isn't a quick fix. You know, I think Liverpool will have to go back in the summer and do the rebuilding or the the real realigning job that Pep's done at Man City. I think that's what Liverpool need at this point. They were always coming towards the end of a cycle anyway, if you look at the ages of the squad. But I, I, I must admit, I didn't see this coming as quickly as it did. I thought it would be next season. It's come a bit early. That can happen. And they have to regather themselves. And, and this season just feels like a, a grind. It just feels like they've got to get through it almost. They do have the Champions League, of course, and that can be a, a salvation for them. The rest of it, I think, need to get in the top four and they have to win games like Sheffield United. But I, do, I actually wonder if Sheffield United will have the shackles off them because they're more or less down now, I think, after after that defeat at the weekend. And and I, I kind of, I've been waiting for them to just sort of take the shackles off and play with a bit of freedom. So I think they're slightly dangerous for Liverpool, I have to say, at the weekend. And as... You know, watched Liverpool against Everton on Saturday, saw them at Leicester the week before, and I'm afraid they're a team that's finding ways to lose. They're just one of those, we've all seen it happen, it happens to good teams, but you just keep having accidents in matches and finding ways to lose them. And it's a horrible season for them. Yeah, if you're thinking about narratives, Anne-Marie, Rian Brewster, Goalless, twenty-three million pounds weighing very heavily on his shoulders. You know, people talking about this being yet another indication that that Liverpool have got this sixth sense about the limitations of some of their younger players. It would be football, wouldn't it, if he went and scored the winning goal? Yeah, I was going to. I was going to say. I wonder if he's going to play in that game. I, I expect him to to feature if he's not in in the starting there, but he'll come off, come on as as a sub. <sighs> It was such a huge amount of money on somebody who's untested as a forward. And I know one could argue that, you know, you look at other young players like Jude Bellingham, who's gone to Borussia Dortmund for a huge amount of money, which has been reinvested into the club because of the pandemic, which is all fine and dandy. But his stats are just not adding up. You know, his stats are quite sobering. 18 appearances, but no goals from that whatsoever. And time is on his side. I'll be a little bit fair to him. You know, he's only 20 years of age, but I, I just, it just hasn't worked out. And there's no sugar coating it. It just hasn't worked out. Um, and it would be nice to see what Brewster can do before the team, as Johnny alluded to, they are heading for the championship. I think that's pretty much odds on now. And he's a, he played brilliantly in the championship. That's the thing. I think if they do go down, I hope, you know, he will be able to show what he can do with it in the championship. I'm just, I'm not entirely sure if he was ready for the Premier League. I, I, I don't know. I feel a little bit sad for him because I think there was so much expectation on, on him. And probably expectation from himself because he wants to to score goals and help the team. But they are in that 
in the whirlpool of relegation now. So yeah, it would be ironic, wouldn't it, to get the winning goal against Liverpool? And Jonathan's actually absolutely spot on. Liverpool are a wounded animal right now. Sheffield United will play, as Jonathan says, without the shackles off. They'll just throw everything at it. And and I hope for them they get a goal from it. Yeah, what about Liverpool's medium-term future, Johnny? Do you expect it to include Steven Gerrard? Obviously, it's topical given he's managing Rangers to a title. We've had the simultaneous resignation of Neil Lennon at Celtic this week. Do you see a path back? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, as sure as Frank Lampard managed Chelsea, Steven Gerrard will manage Liverpool. I don't see it happening, you know, in the short term. Of course, I think Jurgen Klopp's there as long as he wants to be. But I think Stevie will do it. And the signs are, and look, it's, it's early. It's early. He's done an amazing job at Rangers. I don't think people in England appreciate quite how impressive that job is that he's, that he's performed. So he's shown incredible potential and tools for it. But it's, it would still be very, very big to make that jump right now. I think it would be the same kind of jump that Lampard made from Derby to Chelsea, which in hindsight was too early for a, probably a talented coach. And I hope for Stevie's sake that he, he does, he either stays at Rangers a bit longer, has a Champions League adventure with them, or he gets experience somewhere else. And, and he gets to do that Liverpool job at the, a time that's more right for him, because I don't think that time would be now, but he'll certainly... He'll certainly do it at some stage. And he, and he you know, if, if it was offered to him tomorrow, he would be confident enough to take it because one thing that was obvious in taking that Rangers job, you have to have courage to to go in there when Celtic was so dominant, to go into that, you know, goldfish bowls, too nice, a, a per, 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 piranha-filled <laughs> bowl in Glasgow. You know, he'll he certainly got the guts to do that job. Yeah. Do you think Frank Lampard then would be suited to Celtic? I know, you know, it's a wonderful narrative that we'd love it to happen, uh, Amory, but do you think that's realistic or would they be looking at someone like Eddie Howe? Funny enough, Frank Lampard's name was trending on social media yesterday about uh, about the Celtic job, so I, I, I'm not surprised. I think, you know, Celtic have, have got options for sure. They could take somebody like Eddie Howe, but I think from what I understand, gents, I think he's keen to get back into into the Premier League. It could be the right job for Frank, actually, in terms of just keeping his foot within the game. The one thing I wouldn't want for him is to be out out of the game for a long period of time because he is a, a talented coach. It's just finding the right team that matches his levels, and it would be it would be brilliant, wouldn't it? Let's be honest. Having Frank Lampard in Celtic's dugout and Stevie G in the Rangers dugout, I'd I'd watch it if it was on TV. <laughs> I'd watch that match for sure. I do watch the Derby matches anyway when they're on, but I think that would be great. I think that would be such a great story for Scottish football. But uh, let's see, let's see what happens. I'd like to think that Frank is at least having discussions with Celtic and uh, see if that's an option for him. Mm, I'd, li- I'd like to revert to relegation in the Premier League now, if I may, Johnny. If we say that Sheffield United and West Brom are doomed, what does that say about Samuel Allardyce for the first part of the question? And do you still think they're capable of influencing what goes on around them by beating Brighton at the Hawthorns on Saturday? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the Sam one's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think he's, he's, he's kind of, he has improved them in ways. But he hasn't had that transformative impact, of course, that he's had in previous clubs and in relegation. And what you're looking at is, is this because football's moved on a bit and, and those ideas are, are, are old-fashioned? 
or is it maybe just because the con the, the difference is that he's not been able to come in and have a big transfer window, you know, which did happen when he when he was at Sunderland at Crystal Palace. I know they they, they got in Diania, which is a pretty good signing actually, and Snodgrass, but the, you know it wasn't like a, a mega window for him because West Brom don't have the money. So I'm not sure. I think it's actually a bit of both. To be honest, I think the the the, the, the Premier League's maybe got a little bit better. That's not to say Sam, Sam's, you know, that's not to say it's it's now too good for Sam Allardyce, if you know what I mean. I mean, I mean it's too good for a team just to get themselves organised, durable, knock it direct, and 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 nick a few goals. You probably need to do a bit bit more than that now. But of course, they won't go down without a fight, and. It, Although the points total is pretty low and he hasn't won that much since they came in, I I do think he's made them competitive in games and they they could have, you know, they've hung in in games and maybe could have sneaked them and they probably will produce a couple of decent results before the end of the season. I think they'll go down, but I think, yeah, they could upset a few people and it's the ultimate contrast in styles, isn't it? And between the two managers, Mm. you've got the, the, the old and the new in terms of English coaching so it'd be very interesting from that point of view. Yeah, well, judgments are are so complex, aren't they, Amory? Because you know, analytically, Brighton are far better than the table suggests, but that's ultimately irrelevant if they don't get the results. Speaking of results, Newcastle is almost their situation more black and white. No pun intended there, but Steve Bruce is under real pressure there, isn't he? And it's not like he hasn't had pressure before. That's the one thing in Steve Bruce's favour. He's had this pressure. He can deal with the pressure. The thing with me, though, is nobody wants mediocrity from their team. I don't want it from Arsenal. I'm sure Jonathan doesn't want it from Leicester City. If you love your club, you want them to deliver good performances week in, week out. And I think fans have every right to expect that from their team. So when there's this uproar about, you know, fans have been slightly ungrateful about what Newcastle have been delivering, I don't have a problem with that. As a football fan myself, I want my team to deliver 150% on the pitch. And Newcastle haven't done that over the last few weeks. Now, one could argue that injuries and COVID-19 has played a massive part in Newcastle season. I think without Callum Wilson, now I think he's still out with a hamstring injury, from what I understand. He's been central to a lot of their performances. He's been a massive breath of fresh air up front for Newcastle, and I think they're missing him quite a lot. And when I when I was looking at the stats, only Southampton, Southampton West Brom and Sheffield United have scored less that's terrible for Newcastle, for a team of Newcastle standing. They're missing that that ruthless finishing, I think, as well. So, But, you know, Steve Bruce is a an, an vastly experienced manager. The one thing they don't want to do is to be pulled into that whirlpool of re- relegation. And I think with Fulham literally breathing down their necks, it's going to be between those two, I think. And I think it's going to be the next few games are going to be absolutely crucial. And in terms of Newcastle, they've had some, you know, the big players they've faced already. They've played Arsenal, they've played Chelsea, they've played City. They just need to now pick up momentum against with games that they can pick up now over the next six weeks. Yeah, Newcastle have got Wolves on on Saturday. Johnny, we've been around long enough to to actually almost understand why managers are judged in, in sometimes, frankly, weird ways. I, I was really struck by 
the sort of superficial condemnation of Steve Bruce simply because he smiled as he was walking off with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Old Trafford last weekend. You know, surely if you're going to condemn him, do do so for his tactical negativity rather than being the nice bloke that he actually is. I know. I mean, at the risk of sounding the middle-aged bloke that I am, then gosh, it is a superficial. The club, I know. Well, it is a superficial world we live in at the moment, and you know, it's inane, it's banal to to judge someone on 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 you know a moment where they're seen smiling. But that is the age we live in. You know, we live in the age of of memes and clips and 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 judgments being made in 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 four or five seconds. <clears throat> Steve Bruce is one of the loveliest men in football. He played with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who's also another of the loveliest men in football, for some of the you know, most important years of their careers in a team that was incredibly bonded like a family uh, in that era at Manchester United, and they're good friends and they live near each other. So they're probably going to smile when they meet each other. And Steve's always had an ability to whatever's happening in football to be a human being. That's, that's, ask anyone about Steve Bruce that's played with him or known him and they'll tell you what a human being he is. So it's a human moment, but he's smiling with his friend. Nothing to do, zero to do with, with football. If, if it's meant to, some people are trying to take it to mean that he doesn't care about Newcastle. Where have they been? Look at the guy, listen to him talk about the club, listen to the hurt in his voice every time they're beaten and, and, and the situation that they're in. It's utter tripe. You know, the, the, there are bigger problems at that club than Steve Bruce smiling. Yes, yes you could start with the, 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 the grinding football on the pitch, but I'd suspect that it's better looking up in the boardroom. Yeah, I'd agree with that entirely. You mentioned Fulham, Amory. The escape, is it on if they win at Palace? Because they've actually shown an ability to grind out ugly wins, haven't they? The momentum certainly with Fulham, that's for sure. Josh Madger looks his loan looks absolutely inspired. I know he's probably, you know, after what happened with that reality show with Sunderland, I'm sure he wants to he he's keen to show another side of him and he certainly is doing that. I mean he's he's known to Fulham already from his years as a younger player. So I think that looks absolutely inspired. I think their captain captain as well, Anderson, another loan, has been absolutely inspired, a proper leader on the pitch and Fulham have desperately needed leaders. When you've got somebody, you know, of Scott Parker's calibre as your coach, he's a natural leader himself. And then to have Anderson as well as part of that team, it's all the jigsaw pieces coming to play into play. I'm really excited to see if Fulham can pull off this this great escape, and I think they've got every chance to do that. They're playing with two central defenders, which I think work really, really well. And as I mentioned, Fulham have got Newcastle in their crosshairs now, and I think that gives them a real focus, a real point of let's go after them and see if we can continue with this momentum. The thing is, they've got difficult games coming up over the next two to three weeks. Crystal Palace and Fulham is going to be an absolute cracker. I'm really looking forward to that, as well as Tottenham as well. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed for Fulham. I really enjoy watching them play their spirit, their warrior-like as well. And I'd love to see them back in the Premier League in the new season. Yeah, I wonder if Roy Hodgson would um, consider giving Fulham one for old time's sake. I would somehow doubt it. The thing that strikes me about Scott Parker is his calmness under pressure, which is has to be a you know distinctive factor in modern management, doesn't it, Johnny? And I'm thinking here in terms of, of Ralph Hassenhutl and you know the rapid fluctuation in fortune that football gives us. 
that cycle of, of hero to zero will be pretty much complete if Southampton lose again at Everton on Monday, won't it? I would. I mean, I, I, I think Hassan is still one of the best coaches in the league. He's an endearing character. He's someone else that wears his heart very much on his sleeve. And they're in a tailspin of a run, a really bad run, almost worse than the 9-0 against United was losing that game at Newcastle when they were playing against nine men against Newcastle, you know. And I, 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 re- I kind of, I really feel for them. I, I know that I know the, the kind of management handbook would have said that, let's say, after that 9-0 at United, then Hassan Huttel should have, you know, put up the shutters and shown strength and shown that it didn't hurt them at all. But he couldn't help it, you know. He couldn't, he couldn't help showing how, how devastating it was. And I, it, it really has lingered with them. It, it, it's a team that's, when I watch Southampton, I see lots of decent sort of structured lead-up play. And then I wonder at the moment when they're going to score goals, how they're going to score goals. You know, with, with, with Ings looking a bit tired and, and, and being in and out of the team now. I don't know. You know, they're a counter-pressing team. They, 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 and Liverpool are struggling as well. So, you know, pressing as a means of creating goals hasn't been quite what it was in previous seasons for probably for reasons of fatigue among players. And then creatively, I think they've just got quite a lot of nearly players, you know, Nathan Redmond, what a talented player he is, but nearly a really good player. Never quite put it all together in his career. You might say the same of of, of others, you know, Shea Adams has got talent, but is it all quite there? You know, unless, unless Ward-Prowse bends in a free kick, I wonder how they're going to score at the moment. And, they need something quickly to get them out of this, very quickly. Yeah. I just want to finish, Amory, by just looking at certain aspects of, of international football. Can I just start with the England women under uh, Hagarisa? Pretty facile 6-0 win over Northern Ireland this week. But she seems to have been very impressive as a caretaker manager. Do you think she's maybe even a good bet for Team GB this summer? I think she is a real good bet. Baroness Campbell was asked that question about Hegarise. Is she in contention for the job? And and Baroness Campbell wasn't giving anything away. The one thing I will say is that I know that the staffing list has to be submitted early next month. So they're running out of time in terms of making a decision. I think what is clear, though, is that she will be part of that Team GB camp. We just don't know if she's going to be an assistant coach or if she's going to be a head coach. But it, it was... I really enjoyed that match against Northern Ireland. I think there's like 49 places between the two teams. The wind was playing absolute havoc with the cameras on that match. They were moving all over the shop and also with the ball as well. But you could see little differences within the England team. You could see that they wanted to attack the ball more. Lucy Bronze had a stellar game. They looked like they were actually enjoying themselves as well. There was actual smiles on their faces and they played in a new formation of a 4 4 one one more of a high press, more of the switching of the play, which you need against the teams of of Germany and USA and France's caliber. You're going to need that going forward, particularly as you know you've got the Euros and also World Cups coming up. So uh, you know, as a temporary, great, fantastic. I'd like to see her as part of the Team GB setup, but I'm I'm I'd love it if Emma Hayes actually got that job for Team GB. I think she'd be absolutely brilliant for it. And I'd like to see, I know there's lots of talk about England players being part of Team, B, Team GB. The whole point is to have players, not just from England, but from Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. So I'm hoping whoever comes in will find that balance. Yeah. 
I think Emma Hayes is an absolutely brilliant coach and a, a really engaging personality. And, you know, I play for her. I think she, she really has got fantastic, I suppose we have to call it woman management, do we? I don't know, but... <laughs> Player um, management. Player yes. management. Thank you. Thank you, Emery. You got me out of a hole there. Um, what about in terms of development? Jamal Musilera, 18 on Friday, in the Bayern team in, in the Champions League, obviously a special player. He's opted for Germany instead of England, You know, for whom he played at youth level. How big a miss do you think that might be, Johnny? Enormous. The kid's really special. It's funny, I, 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 a mate of mine, you know, English friend of mine, sort of texted, oh, I see he's chosen Germany, you know, s- screw him. And I was like, what? He's chosen the country that he was born in and 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 kind of spent actually most of his life in. I know he's in England between 11 and 18 or whatever, but, you know, of course, I'm quite glad Scott McTominay's made the opposite decision, but that's a, that's a, that's a bracket. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, I mean, he is special to get, to get in that Bayern Munich team for anyone. You've got to be special to do it at, at his age shows how good he is and 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 I've spoken to Serge Gnabry about him who who says wow he looks really mature I guess he's in a position you know sort of he's at number 10 on the sides attacking just behind the striker that England have, are well provisioned for there's plenty of talent that England have got so you know it's not like he's a, he's an option that England really really needed but he's just a really really talented footballer that would make I'm sure will make teams better going forward so a big a big miss, but I completely understand that you know his his you know born in Stuttgart, yes was was at Chelsea's academy when his family lived in England, but really you know clearly feels German. And I just got the sense actually when he was at Bayern, he just knew those Bayern players would get into him and and work on him and do a job <laughs> on him until he until he said he'd play for Germany. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he, if he uh, makes the Euros uh, squad for the, for the summer. Just on that tournament, Anne-Marie, how viable is it if it goes ahead in the multi-city, sort of multinational format that they they came up with, UEFA? I think it's mad. I think it's absolutely mad. I was talking about this with a non-footballing friend, and they said, well, which countries is this... Uh, this uh, tournament taking place. And I said, well, it's all, you know, it's from Dublin all the way to Baku. And they went, wow. <laughs> I think it, it's just, I think it's bonkers at, at this present. Why not have all the games in, in Hungary? There you go. They're playing all the Champions League stuff in Hungary. Let's play, you know, have the tournament there. And I'm being slightly facetious, I know, but I just think at this, you know, we have no idea how the land is going to lie in June, July time. And each country has got a different system in terms of how to manage COVID-19. I think trying to stage a tournament over four weeks, over 12 different countries, is just absolutely mad at this time. And it it, it smacks of stubbornness, I think. it's There's no flexibility around it whatsoever. It's like, this is plan A and this is the only plan A, when I think you still need a plan C, D, E, N and F. I, I will watch it, of course. I'm looking forward to it. I just think it's just... It's daft at the moment thinking you can have a tournament of that calibre in the middle of a global pandemic over 12, is it 12 countries, 12 cities? 12 cities, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's it's bonkers, really. Mm. Well, since Amory's sitting on the fence, Johnny, what about what about you? Could you live without England against Scotland at Wembley? I played at Hampden Park. Come on, Mike. That's, that's the way to go. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, listen, I, I was listening to Anne-Marie. I was thinking that's, she's absolutely right. And yeah, play it in Hungary. That's probably about the right thing. 
Although the Scott and May's thinking, we let we wait our whole lifetimes to have one international tournament <laughs> and then a global pandemic's going to come and take it away. I mean, that's just the Scottish experience all over. But it does seem, it does seem stubbornness is the right word. It, it, I think I was always a bit skeptical of the idea. I, I can kind of understand it. You know, countries maybe spend too much money hosting tournaments and it's a way of getting away from that excess by spreading it around and so on. Nice idea, but things have changed in this world. And I think we need to, we're getting close to it. You know, I, th I think, I think a decision needs to be made properly. And of course, the group of people that are seem last on the list are the fans. You know, I think fans kind of need to know what's going on and need, need, need a decision pretty quickly. I don't see, I don't see how it, at this point in time, it could be held across 12 cities. I also, you know, don't know where we're going to be in June. Nobody does, but it seems a bit odd to make that gamble, doesn't it? When when you're charged with hosting, with with organising a tournament, so yeah, all the games in Budapest and Glasgow would be about right. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it lovely and warming to hear Johnny's excitement of Scotland actually being oh, in a tournament? Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, my love to uh, my friends north of the border. You know, I think we all agree, you know, hopefully football, like the rest of the world, will ease towards some form of normality in the months to come. But that sort of multinational schedule, I can't see how that is even going to be safe, let alone anything else. And Johnny made a, a terrific point about the fans. Once again, they're being ignored. I just hope the final decision won't be made with financial issues in mind that too often is the game's driving force these days what do you think do you agree with me do you agree with us please let us know in the meantime thanks to johnny and Amory, and to you for listening to the football writers podcast Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.